1: Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead on this Monday. The rush to the exits. Airbnb and DoorDash are leading the IPO frenzy this week as year-end fast approaches. But which have been the better bet this year, IPOs or the new kid, SPACs? Plus, don't sell your gold. One widely followed economist says, don't be fooled by its recent weakness. Janet Yellen is as bullish as it gets for this medal. He joins us. And Intel can't catch a break, a Wall Street lift and millions for Bob Dylan. But let's begin with the markets this hour. Dom Chu has more for us.
2: Dom. All right, so a lift for a couple of different key parts of the market right now that traders are watching. But overall, it's a very mixed session so far. Underperformance for the Dow Industrials and the S&P, as you can see here, we're kind of floating near this kind of fractionally down territory. Remember, the Dow, the S&P, the Nasdaq, the Russell 2000 small caps all hit record highs. In trading on Friday, so maybe not so big to see a pullback today. But the Nasdaq still up one third of one percent, reassuming short to medium term that leadership role that we've seen for most of this year. Speaking of some of the Nasdaq stocks, cloud computing. You talked about SPACs and IPOs. Cloud computing has been a very hot part of the market so far this year. Take a look at these two ETFs. Both track larger cloud computing companies. The WisdomTree Cloud ETF ticker WCLD is actually at a record high today. The global X Cloud Computing ETF, which is a bigger ETF in terms of asset size, is still up 65 percent. Very big moves here in just the last couple of weeks off the lows that they saw in the fall so far this year. So watch cloud computing. And then speaking of another lift, it's not lift per se, but look at Boeing shares. Upgrade today by analysts over at UBS citing some of the optimism around the Boeing 737 Max model jet and its trajectory going forward. That's helping to power those gains. It's still down 25 percent year to date. But look at that move ever since vaccines were announced and we've seen some of that reopening trade play out. A big move for Boeing. It's been a big driver of the Dow performance so far in the last few weeks. Sally, We'll see if that maintains that way in the next few weeks to come. Back over to you.
1: Yeah, it looks like a stair-step climb uh, over the recent performance there. Dom, thank you very much. Now, at long last, Airbnb and DoorDash are going public this week. Leslie Picker has a closer look at their offerings. And it's been one of the best years ever for IPOs, but even better for the hot new way of going public, using a SPAC. Bob Bassani has those details. But Leslie, let's start with you.
3: Hey, Kelly, you're right. Two multi-billion dollar IPOs coming to market this week. DoorDash set to make its debut on Wednesday, followed by Airbnb on Thursday. Now, Cal, it's important to underscore the rarity of this level of issuance in a single week, excluding SPACs, which Bob will get to in just a minute. We're expecting to see more than $7 billion worth of IPOs this week. Uh, That's the most since the start of 2014, only three other weeks have actually surpassed that kind of volume. Most recently, in mid-September, and Dom was just talking about this, there was a big week of software debuts and cloud companies cloud computing specifically with Snowflake, and then there was Unity and JFrog as well. They went public, raising a combined $8 billion. Before that, the only weeks that saw greater issuance was in May of 2019 when Uber went public, and then in September of 2014 when Alibaba went public. What's different this time is that these billions of dollars in new issuance is coming weeks before the end of the year when most institutional investors lock in their performance performance For incentive fee purposes, that's when it becomes imperative for them to beat their benchmarks. And if their benchmark is the Nasdaq, well, they're looking at beating gains of about 40% year-to-date. No easy task there. That appears, though, to have helped demand, considering both Airbnb and DoorDash upped their price ranges, Cal.
1: That's fascinating. And you answered the question I was just about to ask Leslie, which is, you know, the fact that they've up their price ranges, does it tell you more about the demand for, you know, these two particular companies or the chase for IPOs this year? But I hadn't thought of it from what you just said that it's really just the chase uh, to beat benchmarks.
3: Well, yeah, that, that's one of the big benefits of going public toward the end of the year in a year that looks like this one, is that you've got this kind of desire for alpha as you kind of close out your positions for the end of the year. And historically, a big source of alpha has been the IPO market if you can get allocation for a, quote, hot deal. Now, these two deals are at least psychologically at this stage appearing hot, considering they both raised their price ranges uh, before they set to debut later this week. Um, And so for an investor, if you kind of look at that psychology, you think, oh, wow, well, if these deals are getting that kind of demand where they can raise their price range, maybe they're poised to pop on that first day of trading. Of course, there's no guarantee. There are inherently risks Mm -hmm. involved with all of these things. Uh, But that first day pop can be a nice source of alpha, especially if you only have a few weeks for it to come back down to earth after its debut. That's so
1: interesting. It's great reporting. Leslie, thank you. Really appreciate it. (laughs) Leslie Picker. Uh, As well as IPOs have done this year, SPACs actually raised even more money. What does that tell us about the future for listings? Let's go to Bob Bassani for more on that. Bob?
4: Hello, Kelly. 2020 was a surprisingly good year for IPOs, but also for SPACs or special purpose acquisition companies, which compete against the traditional IPOs. 194 IPO deals raised $67 billion. Believe it or not, it's the best year since 2014, even excluding this week. That's according to Renaissance Capital. But just about the same money was raised by SPACs. Remarkably, 200 SPACs raised about $64 billion. So who's going to win in 2021? The market participants say there is room for both of them. The Renaissance Capital IPO ETF, which is a basket of the 50 largest companies that have gone public over the last couple of years, has been a big beneficiary of all the interest in IPOs this year. It's up 100% this year hit historic highs just recently. Assets under management are now over $500 million. It's been boosted by pandemic-driven demand for the digital economy, the Zooms and the Pinterests and the biotech companies like Moderna. These are typical stocks in an IPO market. That IPO ETF is going to be one of the first ETFs to include Airbnb and DoorDash, when they go public later this week. Now, there'll be plenty of big-name unicorns that will likely use the IPO route to go public in 2021. SpaceX is likely, Stripe, Waymo, that's Alphabet's autonomous vehicle company, and Instacart, grocery delivery, a competitor to DoorDash. As for the SPACs, there's over 200 SPACs that are currently seeking acquisitions with time limits of 18 to 24 months maximum, implying that if the market conditions hold up, Kelly, 2021 will be at least as strong as 2020 for SPACs. But remember, the market conditions is the key, Kelly. If they don't hold up, up market, and a generally improving economy, then IPOs and SPACs are still going to suffer regardless. Kelly?
1: Well, it's interesting, Bob, just how well the IPO ETF has done. And it tells you that despite a lot of concern about some of the highest profile IPOs, like Uber, which had a rough debut, um, overall, they're doing quite well. They don't include SPACs in that IPO ETF. There's there's a separate into, uh, ETF for that, I guess. There is a SPAC ETF, right? But I wonder, I mean, would Renaissance ever yeah. put them both in the same basket? Or it just thinks that, you know, you, you should have exposure to these separately? I. Uh,
4: y- From my understanding, I doubt they would ever do that. That's a good question. I'll ask Kathleen. I'm going to have her on ETF Edge in a few minutes. But they've been pretty religious about this, that a SPAC is a different way of going public than the IPO market overall. I think the most important thing is just how successful they've been. Remember, SPACs were terrible investments up until a couple of years ago. They were mostly small cap investments, and they mostly didn't do well in the aftermarket. It wasn't until you got Chamath Palihipatiya and other of his ilk coming in Thanks. Having, having successful IPOs with Virgin Galactic and some of the other ones like that in the last two years that SPACs have really taken off. This is a very, very recent phenomenon and a lot of people are keeping their eye on it. Think about this. One hundred and thirty billion dollars in SPACs and IPOs this year. That's a remarkable. That's the most amount of money raised since going back to the 2000 era, since dot com. That's a really remarkable amount of money. You're reading my mind, Bob. SPACs and IPOs.
1: And in the chart you just showed yeah. uh, for SPAC, just so everybody knows, that ETF is relatively new, as you've pointed out. Maybe it still only has $30 million in assets yeah. under management. So, you know, it has That's a lot right. to prove if it wants to rival IPO, but look at how IPO's done. Uh, Bob, we'll let you go and, and do that interview. We'll check back in okay. soon. That's Bob Pisani, Both Airbnb and DoorDash have already boosted their IPO target ranges this week as demand appears strong for the last big listings of 2020. And like Bob was just saying, if you combine IPO and SPAC volume already this year, even before these... The $130 billion raised is the most since the dot-com bubble. What's this telling us? For more, let's bring in Dan Gallagher. He's the tech columnist at the Wall Street Journal for Hurt on the Street. Dan, it's, it's great to have you, and I know you have really good specific thoughts on the merits of Airbnb relative to DoorDash, but um, as a first blush reaction, is this anything to be concerned about in terms of the volume of money that's being raised in the IPO and SPAC market this year, or is it a healthy sign?
5: Uh, that depends on, I guess, where where you sit on the investment. It's I, I think with IPOs, we're seeing definitely a kind of rush, rush to get things in at the end of the year. Um, it's I mean, what's interesting about it is that all this is taking place in the background of this pandemic that has caused so much economic damage um, overall. Um, but the markets seem kind of um, you know resilient, or even um, ignoring what's going on there. Um, so I think I think if you're if you're a company that's sitting on a potential offering. Um, I understand they the reason to try to get out now because investors seem to be uh, willing to take it.
1: Right. And we've seen some really high valuations in the likes of Snowflake, some companies that don't really, I mean, their business model IPOs with some of the SPAC offerings, that kind of thing. But um, everything's being taken to very kindly right now. Is there anything you'd warn investors about? Um, I guess not so much with the offerings this week, but, you know, are there... Or is it just obvious? I mean, the people who are betting on some of these spacs and and kind of big idea businesses obviously aren't coming through the balance sheets because they don't exist. Uh,
5: exactly, and I do think people should uh, be careful about that. Um, I, you know, we're, we seem to be in this market where caution is really, um, you know, tossed aside. Um, and I think if you know, but it's hard to say. Like, does it? When, when does it get to a point where investors start realizing? Um, oh, wow, this, this, is, this is super risky. Um, I mean, a lot of these risks are pretty apparent to people who are going to read, you know, do some simple reading on the, on the documents. Um, I think Airbnb and DoorDash both are, you know, big, well-known businesses, obviously, um, you know, so I think there's probably some degree of comfort w- with that one. But when you get into a lot of these, like, SPAC deals or other companies where a lot of people haven't even barely heard of them before, but they, you know, see, see some upward numbers in the balance, on the income statement and then just buy – Uh, Mm. That's definitely a risky position.
1: Yeah. So let me ask you about Airbnb relative to DoorDash. Uh, If you had to put the the Gallagher family fortunes on the line, which one would you choose?
5: Uh, Well, of course, I can't make any investments at all. But, um, um, you know, I I felt Airbnb was in a better um, position because, you know, the, the problem with DoorDash is they're going out at this time when their business as it is in enjoying this huge boost in demand, obviously from the pandemic, people can't dine out, um, you know, takeout and, and delivery is about the only way to eat out unless you're cooking. Um, and that's obviously not going to repeat. That's going to be over sometime next year. Uh, Airbnb, by contrast, is going out at a time when right as the pandemic has really damaged its business, but it's also shown the certain resilience to bounce back quickly. And so I think um, I think as a whole, Airbnb's got more potential for future upside uh, than DoorDash does right now, because I think door- when DoorDash gets out sometime next year's, you know, next year's financials are not going to show the kind of growth they've been seeing, because that would be, I think, impossible.
1: Sure. And a lot of people have had kind of the opposite point of view uh, about which one they'd go with. So I, I, I like your view, uh, just because it's, it's not the typical one. Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. I- Dan Gallagher of The Wall Street Journal. You can read more of his detailed thoughts online. Still coming up today, it's been a year of stock market records, and one strategist says the bull isn't ready to stop. He'll tell us three tailwinds he sees for stocks, despite signs of market euphoria. Plus, after starting to climb higher, Intel getting hit again. It's the worst performer in the Dow today, shedding more than 4%. Investors spooked by the potential for a new, faster Apple chip. We've got those details coming up.
6: This is The Exchange on CNBC.
1: Welcome back to the exchange. Stocks today are back to their stay-at-home trade as California's lockdown orders go into effect. The Dow and S&P are in the red. The Dow is actually at a new session low right now. While the S&P just hit an an intraday all-time high earlier, it's still up about a quarter percent. But my next guest sees three tailwinds powering double-digit returns for the broad markets next year. With me now is Barry Knapp. He's Managing Partner and Director of Research at Ironsides Macroeconomics. Barry, good to have you. I mean, how does the NASDAQ in particular follow on a 40 (laughs) percent... performance year. And, and how can you be so crazy as to think people should increase their exposure to energy right now?
7: Yeah, that's um, <clears throat> energy. I might actually be a little bit late on. I, you know, I, I thought a year ago that um, <laughs> the market would start to clear and in particular because shale fundamentally changed the elasticity of supply and the implications of that over time are a more stable price and more stable return on invested capital, but we surely didn't have that last year with the pandemic. I do think, though, as we move through the business cycle, uh, energy will start to rationalize in that sense. As far as the NASDAQ outlook goes, um, what I think is going to develop over the course of this year, it's going to become increasingly evident this year, meaning 2021 and beyond, is much like in the 90s when we built out all that technology capacity, fiber optics Uh, cables and the like. In the 2000s, the benefits of that actually accrued to the users of that technology, some of the platforms, for example, but companies that just started sending data around the world and technology didn't outperform. I think we've seen a similar, though not as extreme example of the same in the 2010s, where the digitization built out of of the cloud is going to, those benefits Mm -hmm. are going to migrate from the producers of that technology to the consumers. So You've already seen it in the consumer sector, particularly during the pandemic. Businesses that sell on the Internet are proliferating. You've had a 3% gap higher in e-commerce market share relative to uh, overall mer- general merchandise sales. But you'll see it in healthcare. You'll see it in, in, in industrials. And that diffusion of the technology will broaden out. And so... I come at this that I think you should be market weight technology, not overweighted any longer. And you should probably start to be overweight some of those sectors that are going to be the big beneficiaries.
1: Yeah. And I like how you say that maybe on energy that we've already started to see that happen. Um, the three tailwinds in particular that you're talking about for next year, kind of global uh, rebound, uh, capital investment in the U.S., recovery there and reflation. And I guess, is there anything I mean? You would probably be in the camp then that thinks that, you know, treasury yields are way too low right now. Is rising rates part of your story for next year? It is. I stuck my
7: neck out in August and called that end of the 39-year bond bull market. You should always be aware of strategists making, you know, profound pronouncements like that. But um, I decided to do it anyway. Uh, I do think there's a fundamental change in the inflation outlook relative to the last three decades Uh, We can leave aside the monetary argument, which I'm happy to get into because this is a decidedly different business cycle than the 2000s. The debt isn't in the household sector or the financial sector. But the real structural reason is that the vast or or the biggest contribution to disinflation for three decades was goods prices. And that was a consequence of going from 750 million industrialized workers in 1990 to 2 billion by 2010 because of the integration of China and the Soviet bloc into industrialized world right into global supply chains we've run out of bodies we've shocked that on a number of occasions people are going to restructure and move away from just-in-time supply management to just-in-case so you should not get that disinflationary element and that along with running out of those bodies will increase businesses willingness to substitute capital for labor and that shouldn't push rates up over time and so the fed's going to fight it right we're in financial repression But I do Mm -hmm. think that they're headed up for sure Um, over the course of the decade. That's interesting. I
1: always get so many different ideas about what's going on in the world uh, from talking to you, from hearing you. Uh, And so, again, just to put a bottom line on it for investors, you think we can still get 15% returns from here next year. Barry, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. We'll check back in soon.
7: All right. Thanks, Kelly.
1: Barry Knapp of Ironsides. Goldman Sachs isn't as bullish on the markets here. The firm's saying today that despite what looks like imminent vaccine approval, rising COVID cases and hospitalizations could spur a position unwind and further restrictions or shutdowns could slow short-term economic growth. You can read more on that call over at CNBC.com pro. Coming up... A golden nomination. Gold may be out of favor with investors right now, but one prominent economist says that once Yellen takes over, it may be back on Wall Street's radar. Plus, hospitals are anxiously waiting the rollout of the new COVID vaccine. We'll speak with the head of the largest health system in Houston about preparation, distribution, and who to prioritize. We're back in a couple. Welcome back to the exchange. Let's get a check on markets about half past the hour. Dow's near session lows right now, although it's bounced off them quite nicely. Uh, by near, I mean we were at them at the top of the hour. We we're down 219. We're now down about 170. That's a half percent decline, a third percent drop for the S&P today. And the Nasdaq is up another quarter percent. It tells you a little bit about the sectors, communication services, utilities and technology are your leadership today. Energy, financials and real estate, those are the laggards trimming some of their recent gains. And here are some of the individual movers. Teladoc is lower on a downgrade to equal weight at Stephens, They say Teladoc should see a continued increase in patient visits, but will also face increasing competition. It's down 3%. Broadcom is moving higher ahead of earnings later this week. Bank of America adding the company to its U.S. one list, and Evercore ISI raising its price target by $50 to $450. Broadcom up about two bucks to $421 today. And another day, another record high for Tesla. The stock is scheduled to be added to the S&P on December 21. It is up 650% this year and 5% today to $629. Let's get to Sima Modi now for our CNBC News Update.
8: Hi, Sima. Good afternoon, Kelly, and good afternoon, everyone. Here is your. NBC News update at this hour. A federal judge in Michigan has denied a Republican effort to decertify the state's presidential election results, saying it provided no proof of wrongdoing, just, quote, speculation and conjecture. A similar outcome in Georgia, where a lawsuit from Trump lawyer Sidney Powell has also been dismissed on multiple grounds. The judge said Powell failed to provide evidence of a conspiracy to throw the election to Biden. An early study showing progress towards a universal vaccine for the flu. The experimental vaccine produced immune response to a wide range of flu strains that lasted for at least 18 months. And in Russia, a warehouse full of fireworks blew up in spectacular fashion. Hundreds of firefighters fought the blaze for hours. Surprisingly, no injuries were reported. They got lucky. That's the CBC News Update at this hour. Kelly, back to you.
1: Yeah, you almost feel bad, you know, just observing how beautiful it is. Yeah, exactly. Sima, thank you so much. We'll see you in a little bit, Sima Modi. For Gen Z, entering the job market for the first time in the middle of an unprecedented economic crisis, the pandemic has highlighted some key disparities that are hindering economic advancement for many. Sharon Epperson is here now with results from a new survey highlighting what teens believe some of the problems are. Sharon?
0: Well, Kelly, most teens believe there is a lack of equal economic opportunity in the U.S. based on race, ethnicity, and gender. That's according to a new survey from Junior Achievement. And a key obstacle is the pay gap. The J.A. survey about teens and economic opportunity asked, are people in our society paid less based on race, ethnicity, and gender? 61% of teens answered yes, 19% said no, and 20% were not sure. On entrepreneurship, the survey asked, are people having a harder time getting financial support to start a business based on their race, ethnicity, or gender? 69% answered yes. And 73% said that racism is embedded in societal institutions, such as laws, rules, and procedures. Now, the COVID-19 crisis has exacerbated some racial and gender disparities. Yet this financial advisor sees a brighter future.
4: The silver lining really with this pandemic is that we have all gotten out of our bubble and we are looking into other people's community and we're seeing what's happening and we're asking ourselves, what can we do about it?
0: More than 1,000 teens ages 13 to 17 responded to this national survey conducted by Engines Insights. And not surprisingly, the overwhelming majority of female, black and Hispanic teens responded yes to those three questions. Kelly?
1: And do they kind of talk about what the response uh, they, they think is?
0: They kind of rank the resp- what they think the response should be from organizations and from individuals. And they're looking at financial and uh, sorry, federal and state government as leading the way, as well as local communities. Then they're looking at businesses and also looking at schools and individuals who are facing inequality to address the issues.
1: All right, Sharon, thank you, Sharon Epperson. Uh, we appreciate it. For more, don't forget to join a live virtual summit tomorrow from 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern. CNBC and Acorns invest in you. Ready, set, grow is partnering with Junior Achievement for a special event that will bring those teens from across the country together with a panel of experts to discuss economic disparity in America. Go to cnbc.com slash jasummit to register and NBC Universal and Comcast Ventures are investors in, in Acorns. Coming up, Bitcoin continues to dominate a 30% lift for Lyft and as Intel's comeback about to slow down as Apple's chips get faster. It's all ahead in rapid fire, don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines are Dominic Chu, Seema Modi, and John Ford. Great to see everybody. First up, Intel is under pressure, the worst performer in the Dow, after a new report said Apple is targeting a debut as early as next year for the next series of new Mac processors. Intel's now on pace for its worst day since October, and this comes after its first nine-day winning streak in three years. The shares have really struggled to recover. They even fell below their March lows at the end of October on that weak third quarter results, delays to the next generation processors. John Ford, I mean, this story, I think, has everybody should care about it. And before we get into all that, I have a question for you. These these new Apple chips that everybody's raving about, um, does Apple manufacture them in this country? Do you know?
9: Uh, I don't know. Generally, Apple would use somebody like TSMC for the manufacture of its chips. Now, TSMC has said that they are moving some manufacturing capacity, building it in the U.S., and one would imagine that's for U.S. customers, including Apple. So as Apple builds more of its chips into uh, its devices going forward, I would expect to see more of that manufacturing come here to the U.S., but we'll see.
1: Yeah. So here's my point, and I mean, I thought Stacey Raskin just said this brilliantly on your show a couple of months ago when this was really becoming an issue. The outperformers now, everyone who's taking share in the semiconductor industry from Intel, which makes its chips here, is basically using TSMC, Taiwan Semi. Mm -hmm. You know, and he's the one who said that kind of implicates Taiwan in a very important part of our supply chain. So you have half of corporate America, which relies on China for its sales, John. And then anybody who uses semiconductors, especially with Intel struggles now, relying on Taiwan. It feels like we're going to be in this impossible situation. I I just find that angle, that kind of national... Uh, security angle. Fascinating about this story.
9: It is fascinating. I caught that that binary, though. Uh, Samsung also makes a lot of chips. They do some of that in South Korea. They also do some of that here. Intel has chip fabs around the world. So while they do have a lot here in the U.S., they also have some in Germany, in Israel. There are a lot of chip fabs overall in Israel. So yes, it is a time for investors to get more savvy about chip fabs where that manufacturing takes place. But it's not a binary thing. It's either here or it's close to China. There's a lot of diversification to be had there as well.
1: Yeah, fair enough. And Dom, it's been fascinating as well to see just how much people rave about these new Apple chips. Like I said, I had just written a whole thing about how we have gone back to having all PCs in our house. I read these Apple reviews. I feel like I need to go out and get a new MacBook.
2: I, I mean, there was a time when everybody said that Intel was going to die because it wasn't making these wireless chips as well as other companies like, say, Qualcomm, others out there. This seems like a scenario where in the coming months and years, Intel could be at a real turning point and could re- make a real name for itself. If it could somehow show investors it could evolve to play catch up with companies like advanced micro devices, like Nvidia, like other big ones who have just lapped them over the course of the last several years. That's going to be the big story in semiconductors is just how much Intel can recover from this. Remember, it's a stock that hasn't really done a lot like its other peers have over the course of the, say, yeah. the last 10 years. It could be due for a big turnaround if they can get things going.
1: John, we have to move on. But I mean, it is a tall order for Intel at this point. If that is a tall order, I, they are fighting a losing battle, doesn't it
9: seem? No, I, I think that's being overplayed a bit. The, the nanometer measurements uh, for, on chips are actually different per manufacturer. So this idea that Intel is being lapped, yes, they're a bit behind and they're behind the, their own plan, but they're not quite as behind as, as some investors are saying.
1: All right. Fair enough. Again, one of the strugglers this year uh, for the Dow for the whole market. And, and, and we should all be paying attention to where what happens now. Uh, Seema, let's help us break down this move on Lyft today. Uh, it's hired Piper Sandler out with a big upgrade. Uh, moving the stock to overweight from neutral, raising its price target to $61 a share, about 32% higher from here. And this is after an amazing run. I mean, these shares have more than doubled since the beginning of November, with the stock coming off its best month ever, riding its first five-week winning streak since last June. What else do we need to know?
8: Well, I think Lyft and Uber certainly coexist in that reopening trade, joining the hotels and cruises and online travel operators. But what I think this sell-side report really fails to address is car ownership, which has been on the rise since the pandemic. So you're talking about all those consumers and folks who now own a car. They're supposed to go back to ride sharing once a vaccine is out. I think more people are more inclined to use their car. Unless it's a short distance, perhaps, for example, Wall Street to Upper East Side, where you don't want to pay for parking, that's perhaps an example of where you still don't feel com- comfortable using public transportation, where you may opt for a ride share. I will say, recently took a lift about a month ago, I would say. The price actually went up. It didn't go down. So I think that's something to keep hmm. in mind. Mind, um, as they try to, you know, make it meet.
2: Here, here's what I would say. You, first of all, Uber and Lyft, Uber is worth around, I want to say, $95 billion at this point right now. Lyft is worth around $15 billion. Uber's year-to-date performance has been close to around 80 percent. That's how much it's, by the way, at a record high or hovering right near there. Meanwhile, Lyft, despite that massive run, is up maybe 8 or 9% so far in 2020. The big deal here is whether or not the entire industry can grow. If it is, this is a catch-up trade. This is one where people say, you know, if, if Uber's prospects are that good and Lyft can somewhat emulate them in just some kind of capacity, way, shape, or form, this is a stock that could be due for just a little bit of catch-up. And when you have a spread like 80% year-to-date versus 8% year-to-date, it's maybe not a out of the realm of reason to say some traders say, hey, this, this could be a, a big deal of a trade if Uber... Just does what it does, and Lyft can play a little bit of catch up here.
1: I wonder if their improvement over the past six weeks also helps uh, the landscape going into the Airbnb and DoorDash IPOs. Because Uber and Lyft, when they were struggling, you know, earlier that was a big black eye for the IPO market. And look at them now. All right, whoever and we we'll always love talking some Bitcoin. John in particular, uh, it reverse trend today, moved sharply lower after trading. Uh, pretty much near the all-time highs. It was kind of around 19,500. We were closing in on the 20,000 mark when we hit a record high on December 1st. Now, Bitcoin obviously has doubled in about the past six months. The question, guys, is whether it's this kind of deja vu of three years ago when we had a huge Bitcoin rally around Thanksgiving, early December, and then we kind of you know, gave a good bit of that back. Seema, what are you hearing about why uh, these latest wiggles? I mean, what, what's the scuttlebutt about it?
8: Well, I think it's for those who follow this space, I think that 20,000 level is seen as sort of this key psychological level. It never fully got through that level back in 2017. So if it's able to break that barrier, I imagine our Twitter conversation will be dominated by Bitcoin, at least for a couple of minutes. And we know John Ford enjoys that here's the other thing that i think perhaps people don't realize some of the longer term risks we now have a treasury secretary janet yellen who as fed chair was very critical of bitcoin saying it's not a store value she's not a fan of it so what does she do as treasury secretary to add more regulation to cryptocurrency the other thing many people are expecting is some type of central backed uh, digital currency whenever that does come you got to wonder if bitcoin loses its appeal
1: Yeah, Dom, there was a story out of China today where they're launching, you know, digital yuan, which I don't really understand the distinction. But like, for example, a digital dollar is just a dollar, you know, central bank. Digital. We already have digital currencies. I mean, I, I I carry $5 of cash around max anywhere I go these days.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's just a format capability, right? But but you mentioned this whole China discussion. Remember, a lot of the volatility that was caused during the last kind of downturn bout that we saw for cryptocurrencies in general and Bitcoin specifically was around the regulatory aspect, as Sima points out, not just here in the U.S., but it was mainly driven by places like China and South Korea, where there's a lot more trafficking and trading of these types of cryptocurrencies. True. If you do have China get more involved from a central planning standpoint into this particular market, that volatility is pretty much here to stay. The, the real issue right now is whether or not there is enough of uh, enough fortitude within the Bitcoin community to be able to say we can withstand this kind of thing. And this is not not necessarily a store of value, but something that can actually be transacted right. upon with these without government oversight as much. That's going to be a big key.
1: If it doesn't collapse here, I think it will win a lot of fans. John, all you have to do right now is shout, get off my lawn. (laughs) Get off my lawn. (laughs) Investors
9: out there, Bitcoin buyers, at least have a theory of why you think it goes up and down. That's the key to me. Like, I I don't know why it does that, but you should at least have your own reason why you think it does.
1: And no thesis creep, like we talk about with Mike Santoli. No thesis creep. Not here on Rapid Fire. (laughs) All right, finally, before we go, let's talk a little Bob Dylan. Ah, yes. The musician and Nobel laureate is selling his entire catalog of more than 600 songs spanning six decades. He's selling to Universal Music. Terms of the deal weren't announced. But just this past Friday, Stevie Nicks, guys, sold a majority stake in her catalog, valued at $100 million. These songs have a ton of staying power. And see, but here's my little theory lately. I think the music market is becoming so fragmented. Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean the era in which these kinds of stars could be universally known incredibly uh profitable if you want to call it that um i just wonder if those days have passed i mean are we ever going to have an artist today who could have a catalog as well maybe taylor Taylor Swift swift was the last major one yeah but she's old now john i mean that was 10 years ago right what do you guys think no, she's
8: a, I mean, he's a legend. And that's why I think this music portfolio is sort of the ultimate jewel in the industry and therefore getting a lot of attention. I think there's a rumor about how big how much it was sold for hundred to two hundred million dollars. Uh, and now Universal Music Group, as it prepares for its IPO next year, not only does it have Bob Dylan, but now Taylor Swift as well. So it's certainly done a good job at building out its portfolio.
1: Is there anyone who can emerge on the scene today, Dom? And my point is like, Taylor Swift was already kind of there before the fragmentation of radio and the proliferation of Spotify, all these things. I mean, is there anyone you think could emerge today and ultimately command like a hundred million dollar valuation? Is that still possible
2: today? It's, I mean, it's tough because just the, the way that move, mu- I mean, music, like you said, is kind of produced these days and put out there and the shelf life of them is a little bit different than it was 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. But if the numbers keep on going like this, the only way people are going to be able to do this is if you're uber wealthy and pay like Picasso money or Van Gogh money for one of these catalogs, or you start to get into institutional investors like hedge funds to pull money and buy them up, kind of like what happened with Taylor Swift's catalog, right? So this is going to be a big deal. I I view these as works of art. They have scarcity value, and that's the big deal.
1: Uh, Yeah. John, last word
9: on this. Absolutely it can happen. Look at your DJ Khaled's. Look at, yeah, he's, he's been around for a while, but Eminem, there are artists exactly. out there who still have resonance. has oh, been around for it's 20 all, years. It's about IP now. It's about the songwriting more than just the performance. I want to know if someone today... I'm I'm just saying the the models there, it's it's the IP, it's the songwriting, it's who wrote the code to the song. That's why Bob Dylan is making all this money. It's not about any individual performance, it's the code.
2: Wait, wait, Kelly, so John is saying content is king? Content is king, is that what John is saying? I've heard that before, too, by (laughs) the way. We've been... (laughs)
1: thank you guys all we appreciate it today john ford domchu and Siva modi that does it for us in rapid fire coming up gold we just talked some bitcoin but gold is climbing today it's still about four percent lower over the past month why investors should hang on to their gold because of the incoming treasury secretary that's next Welcome back. Gold is rallying today, but it's still well off its high of $2,000 and change back in August. The market continues charging higher while vaccines appear to be arriving soon. My next guest says don't sell your gold just yet because Janet Yellen is headed back to Washington. Let's welcome in Dave Rosenberg. He's the chief economist and founder of Rosenberg Research. Dave, it's great to have you. I really wanted to talk about this call. Um, Why do you think the Treasury Secretary is going to matter that much?
10: Well, actually, uh, I'm not convinced that Janet Yellen is going to be good or bad for gold on herself. I think that what we're talking about here is uh, the alliance that uh, Treasury is going to have with the Fed. Uh, And so I think that when I brought up, you know, (laughs) to buy gold is because I was going back to the last time we had a Treasury secretary that also served previously as the head of the Fed, and it was uh, William Miller back in the— in the late 1970s, when we had the massive reflation and gold acted as a great hedge against that. So it's really less about Jenny Ellen. It might, might even be more, frankly, Kelly, about uh, Jay Powell and the Fed. Uh, and uh, at some point, you know, I've been in the deflation camp. I've been in the big secular bond bull camp. But, you yep. know, at some point, we are going to reflate so much that we're going to get the inflation. And that's really why you want to have gold yeah. in the portfolio.
1: And, Dave, that's why I wanted to talk to you in particular about this, because it it's kind of a a break from what uh, we've heard from you in the past. So and this is really important. And Edgar Denny was on the halftime report a couple weeks ago talking about the same phenomenon He called it T-Fed. But this combination of Treasury and the Fed and let's put aside all the independence questions and kind of focus on the real politic of it. That combination, you think? I mean, are they going to overdo it? Are they are they going to overstimulate?
10: Well, I think that there's a risk uh, that they already have. Uh, And I'm not even talking about uh, the Treasury. I'm talking about the Fed. Uh, I mean, we have M1 growth, Kelly, of 56% year over year. Uh, M2 is running at 25% year over year. Uh, And I think that we're now getting such dramatic, rampant monetary creation that it's going to overtake the contraction in money velocity. I'm starting to, for the first time, in decades starting to second guess my long-standing disinflation-deflation view, and I'm starting to think more about the future that we are going to overstimulate, and we're going to get more inflation than it's bargained for. It's actually, tell you the truth, look, it's more about the Fed. And it was when Jay Powell said that we are going to leave rates at zero. Forget about all the balance sheet expansion. We're going to leave rates at zero even after inflation gets above our magical target, elusive target of 2% long after we get to full employment or beyond, we're keeping rates at zero. So the Feds, they're telling you on their own, we're going to be keeping real rates negative right. for at least the next right. three or Let four years. Let me just years. ask you,
1: Dave, because I, I just want to sneak this in before we have to go. Why hasn't the bond market reacted yet? Is it never going to react? Is it just going to wait until it, it sees the, the actual inflation?
10: So you're talking about why hasn't the 10-year broken above one, 1% finally? That's what you're asking yeah. me. Well, look, uh, we've already seen in the markets inflation expectations pick up from their lows. Uh, real rates are less negative than they were before. But you see, it's going to be very difficult, Kelly, to get a real bear market in bonds when the cost to carry is going to be close to zero. It's like everything else in the markets, there is no Fed risk. And there's no Fed risk in mm. the long end of the curve. So that's why, like, how steep is it really going to go? Um, so you don't get bear markets yeah. and bonds unless the Fed is raising the cost to carry and tightening policy so at worst we're just going to stay in a range for the foreseeable future
1: that's fascinating dave uh, do come back we talk more about it but thank you so much for your time today
10: you too thank you
1: dave rosenberg of rosenberg research still ahead texas has reported nearly 1.3 million covid cases the ceo of memorial herman health system will join us talk about how they're preparing to receive covid vaccines and what the rollout will look like don't go anywhere Welcome back. COVID-19 vaccine distribution is top of mind these days. It comes as hospitalizations have risen above 100,000 across the country. Seven-day averages are at or near all-time highs in the Midwest, in the West, in the South. And in Texas, Memorial Hermann Health System, Houston's largest, will be among the first to receive vaccines if they are approved as expected this week. It's expecting more than 16,000 doses of the Pfizer vaccine. They've treated nearly 12,000 COVID patients this year. Dr. David Callender is president and CEO of Memorial Hermann, and he joins me now. Doctor, it's good to have you, and um, how quickly, upon FDA approval, are you going to be vaccinating uh, your frontline workers?
11: Quickly, we believe. We here that the um, process will probably extend through about the 14th of January, and then the vaccine will be shipped, uh, shortly, ap- shipped shortly after that, based on the approval. So the 14th we of January, we'll be,
1: uh, uh, December, or the 14th of me. December.
11: Yeah, forgive me. Yeah. Uh, we believe that we'll be uh, administering vaccine within a day of shipping, so the 15th or 16th of December.
1: And you have the cold storage necessary. How how many, If 16,000 doses, that'll cover, you know, how does that get distributed?
11: Well, we'll distribute that across all of our delivery sites. We have 12 sites that we'll use for administration of the vaccine. We can administer about 1,800 uh, vaccinations per day. So it'll take us about 9 to 10 days to work through our initial allotment.
1: So let's talk about that again. You think you can have basically all of your workers vaccinated within about 10 days. And are there there a significant number of people you expect to turn down the vaccination possibility? And if so, do they still stay where they are?
11: We have 28,000 employees in our system. We'll receive 16,575 doses with this initial allocation Those are prioritized for our frontline caregivers, those who work in a unit that contains COVID-19 patients, or those who regularly encounter people who are infected. And so uh, we won't be able to vaccinate all of our employees, but certainly believe we'll be able to uh, cover most of those who are in those frontline caregiver positions.
1: So just to be clear, are you giving your workers are you basically giving the half dose to as many workers as possible or because it you know we have to be spaced several weeks apart or would you give the full dose to you know half as many people
11: well we've been assured by the state that we'll receive sixteen thousand five hundred and seventy five vaccinations so that encompasses both doses so we'll proceed with using the full allotment originally and then plan for 28 days down the road to deliver the second dose.
1: Interesting. Yeah, it's a uh, a difficult uh, one to figure out. I'm sure for not least for you. Uh, We have to leave it there, Dr. Callender. Thanks for joining us uh, to talk a little bit about what your plans are. We appreciate it. He's from Memorial Memorial Health System in Houston. That does it for The Exchange today, but stick around for power lunch. Goldman Sachs considering moving some of its operations to Florida. Wells Fargo's Mike Mayo weighs in on that coming up. I will join Tyler Matheson after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
6: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses,